following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. When I was in college, our, our cross-country and track coach got our team a sponsorship. And I know what you're thinking. A bunch of skinny college kids in short shorts running around golf courses. What kind of sponsorship do you get? Right, maybe some kind of protein bar or socks or something like that. That's, that's not the sponsorship we got. My coach got us sponsored by Krispy Kreme Donuts. <laughs> and so as part of this sponsorship, we got T-shirts that were our warm-up shirts for that season. And they had the Krispy Kreme logo across the front. And on the back, it had our slogan, which was, if the furnace is hot enough, it'll burn anything. Now, nutritionally, that's not probably a great way to set up your, your nutrition plan, right? But to a certain extent, it's true, right? If a fire is hot enough, anything will maybe not burn, but at least melt down, right? Metals, even diamonds. If you can get a fire hot enough, a diamond will melt. There's a chemical change that will happen with enough heat. In case you're wondering for a diamond, it's about 7,200 degrees Fahrenheit, but you can get it that hot. But for a fire to burn that hot, it needs fuel and it needs plenty of it. For our faith to flourish, it needs fuel and it needs plenty of it. Fortunately, when it comes to our faith, God has already given us all the fuel we need. He's given us everything we need for our fire to burn hot and burn bright. The question is, do we see it? Do we recognize it? And are we willing to take hold of it? As we look at these seven verses in 2 Timothy, I want you to be asking yourself this one question. What is the fuel God has provided for your faith to burn hot and bright? In these first verses of 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul is going to lay out three fuels that God has provided for Timothy and for you and me. And the first of these is this, the heritage of faith. The heritage of faith. Verses 1 through 5, if you've got your Bible open, follow along with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, for the sake of the promised life in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly loved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Remembering your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and now I am, in, I am convinced is in you also. Okay, Paul, in these verses, is laying out the heritage of faith. Again, this is, this is a letter. Second Timothy is a letter written from the Apostle Paul, who we know from many other books in the New Testament. But the letter of Second Timothy is a little different. This is probably the last letter he wrote that we know of in his life. 
It was probably written during his second imprisonment in Rome, an imprisonment that tradition tells us ends in his execution, probably around the year 67 AD. So as he's facing his execution, with one of his final letters, he writes to his protege, this young man named Timothy. And what we're gonna see as we go through this letter, as we see Paul talk over and over and over again to Timothy, is he's gonna continue to come back to an encouragement to stand firm in the faith because he understands that what Timothy is facing in this church he's at, which is in the city of Ephesus, right? A, A city you know of from the book of Ephesians. Timothy is leading the church And Paul knows that there is this false teaching and false theology and false teachers who are trying to worm their way into the church to try to sidetrack the believers, to tear them away from faithfulness to the Lord and to the Lord's word. And he keeps telling Timothy throughout this letter, Timothy, stand firm in the face of these false teachings and these false teachers who are trying to infiltrate God's church. And as he does this in these first verses, he says, and, and, and the way you're gonna stand firm, right? The fuel for standing firm, for burning hot here is gonna be through the heritage of faith. And in these, these first five verses, he gives three areas in which this heritage of faith is known to Timothy. First, he says, Timothy has a heritage of grace-filled experience. Okay, Timothy has a heritage of grace-filled experience. Timothy had worked with Paul. We read in the book of Acts that that Paul goes and and, and he finds Timothy and he brings Timothy with him. Timothy travels with Paul. He converses with Paul. He learns from Paul. He, He, on these ministries, he saw God do incredible things. He's seen lives change. He's had all of these grace filled experience. He was even empowered to lead at a very early age, 1 Timothy. In the letter of First Timothy, Paul says, don't let anyone look down upon you, what? Because you are young. Just a second, kind of a soapbox moment for me. That doesn't mean he was in his teenage years. He was probably in his mid-30s. But, but in the first century, that was young for a leader. He says, listen, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. So Timothy has experienced this, this power of God working in him, working through him showing him these incredible things. He's had all these grace-filled experiences. Second, Paul points out that that Timothy has had a grace-filled, or has had a heritage of a spiritual father. Heritage of a spiritual father. From everything we know about Timothy, his father, we don't know if his father had run out on the family or was just physically present, but spiritually absent. Because we don't get any real understanding of where his father is. We know his father was not an influence in his life. But what God did give him was Paul, who stepped in as a spiritual father. Look at the words Paul uses to write to Timothy. To Timothy, my dearly loved son. Yeah, Paul took Timothy on missionary journeys, took him to do work gave him tasks, gave him missions to do. But it wasn't to take a load off of Paul's back. It was because he loved Timothy and wanted to see him grow and mature to be exactly who God had created him to be. Timothy was not just a coworker with Paul. He was a son. 
So God gives Timothy this heritage of grace-filled experience, this heritage of a spiritual father. And finally, he gave them a heritage of godly instruction. Right in the last verse here, he's, Paul says, hey, listen, Timothy, I know your mother and your grandmother were godly women and they raised you right. Their faith, their faith is evident through you, right? You're living out the example that you saw in your mother and your grandmother. He says, I know they had a sincere faith and I know I'm convinced it lives in you as well. Timothy was blessed with a mother and a grandmother who gave him godly instruction and had a clear influence in his sincere faith. So this heritage of faith, a heritage of grace-filled experience, heritage of a spiritual father, and heritage of godly instruction. As I was reading this, I kept coming back uh, to Exodus chapter two. I kept thinking back to the the life of, of Moses. And if you read Exodus chapter two, you get some really interesting details about the life of Moses. Right? Moses was raised in royalty. Right? He was born of a, an enslaved people, the Israelites, but was adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter. Now, what that means for Moses as opposed to the rest of the Israelites is that Moses learned to read and write. He was literate. The rest of the Jews were not. So he's raised in this royalty. He's literate. And then he, through the, the, the story, we find out that he remains connected to his Jewish roots. If you remember how that story goes, the Pharaoh's daughter sees him and, and takes him out of the, the water. And then she calls a nearby Hebrew woman to come nurse him. Remember who that Hebrew woman was? Moses' mother. So even though he's raised in the Egyptian palace, he's still connected to his Jewish roots and his mother teaches him about the Jewish faith. This is how he knows about the Jewish faith. He remains deeply connected. And then after he kills an Egyptian man for harming an Israelite man, right? Which is, again, he's deeply connected to his Jewish faith. This wasn't a random act of violence. He understood what was happening. Then Moses goes on the run. And what's he do while he's on the run? If you remember what job he had, he tended sheep. He learned to care for the sheep. He learned leadership. So you have this this enslaved boy born to an enslaved family who grows up to have a connection with the Lord, to be properly educated, and learns leadership. That's amazing, isn't it? When you, when you think about what God's gonna do through Moses, how he's gonna bring the Israelites out of Egypt through Moses' leadership. But we gotta keep reading, right? Because that's, that's Exodus 2. When you get to Exodus 3, God comes to, to Moses while he's out tending sheep. And he comes and he shows up in the burning bush. And it says, God says, go. Right? Moses, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Right, God's prepared him. Now God says, go, you got a mission. Go, do it. The next chapter is back and forth between Moses and the Lord. About it. Moses kind of going, are you sure it's me? Until you get down to chapter four, verse 10. And you get to the heart of the matter. You get Moses just exhausted by this conversation with the Lord where the Lord says, go, right? Go do this thing. And God's prepared him for it. 
But in Exodus 4, verse 10, it says, but Moses replied to the Lord, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent either in the past or recently since you've been speaking to your servant because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish, right? He's looking for any way he can to get out of doing what God has called him to do. Why? Why? See, Moses claimed ineptitude at the task in front of him because he'd missed everything God had done. He missed everything God had done to prepare him for this task that God was calling him to. You ever have a Moses moment like that? You ever have that time where God calls you to something and you're like, oh, there's no way I can do that, God. You must be talking to somebody else, not me. <laughs> Maybe you haven't. I have. I've had many of them. Far, far more than I would care to admit to. But the problem in those moments is that we forget everything God has done and the way he has prepared us to maintain a fire in our faith. We must never forget the heritage of our own faith. See, wherever you're at in your walk with the Lord, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has done things in your life. God has put people in your life. God has shown you things. He set you on a path. And he gave you a heritage of faith to build you up, to strengthen you, to mature you, to be ready for whatever he's gonna send you into. Hebrews chapter 12, verse one in the first half of two. It says, therefore, since there is such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Okay, first off, the author of Hebrews says, don't forget the cloud of witnesses. What's the purpose of the cloud of witnesses? To strengthen you. So that you can set aside every hindrance and sin. I think a lot of times we go to the sin part of that, but we leave out the hindrance. There are hindrances that are not sins, but they hinder us. They're distractions. They keep us from giving ourselves fully and completely to the Lord. But the great cloud of witnesses reminds us that we can live faithfully before the Lord. You go back one chapter, you hit Hebrews 11, and you get that whole story. All of these Old Testament heroes and how they faithfully followed the Lord, how their faith burned hot, how their faith was just on fire. And God used them to do what God was going to do because they were faithful. It's all of these Old Testament heroes and, and the author of Hebrews is reminding the first century church, hey guys, don't forget about all these people who came before you. For you and I, that cloud of faithful witnesses has only grown. Yes, we can look at the Old Testament and see all those, those faithful men and women who served the Lord with that passionate faith, but it continues for us into the New Testament with men like Peter and, and Paul. And it continues on into the early church with Irenaeus and, and Augustine. And it continues on from there to people like Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, Billy Graham, Lottie Moon. And it continues on even into your personal life and my personal life with parents, with godly grandparents, spiritual mentors, with camp experiences, with conventions and gatherings, with church families. 
with friends who spoke to you at the right time with the right words, who called you to repentance, who showed you the goodness, the love, the grace, the faithfulness of the Lord. Every single one of you sitting in this room, whether you realize why you're here or not, is irrelevant. God has put a heritage in your life that has made himself known. And every aspect of this heritage points back to a meaningful expression of a powerful faith. So what is the heritage in your life? What's that heritage God has put in your life? Maybe that's a good exercise for this week. Lord, who are the the people, the places, the events, the things that you have worked in my life to show your grace, your mercy, your love? And let me challenge you to do this. Take that a step further. Respond to that heritage, right? If God shows you that person, that family member, that neighbor, that friend, that coworker, thank them. Write them a letter. Send a gift. Spend some time in prayer praying for that, that person or that, the people involved in that experience. Maybe that, that, that person who is of the greatest spiritual heritage in your life has died. Just spend some time quietly reflecting on their life, thanking the Lord that he brought them into your life at the right time for the right purpose. Remembering God's grace through the heritage of our faith gives us a beautiful foundation upon which we can build and maintain the fire of our faith. So again, what's the heritage that reminds you of the power of faith in Jesus Christ? Timothy's heritage would help to keep him lit up and passionate in his faith. But Paul continues on and gives him the second fuel. And it's found in verse six, where Paul continues to encourage Timothy to grab a hold of the fuel of the engagement of ministry. The engagement of ministry. Just verse six. Paul says, therefore, right? Because you've got this sincere faith, because I know this lives in you, because of everything God has done in you and through you, because you have this sincere faith, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. Okay, Paul's first commandment here, his first commandment to Timothy here is to rekindle the gift of God. Rekindle. Now, we hear rekindle and we think, well, his fire burned out, right? That's, you have to rekindle it. But that's, that's not what he's saying here. Rekindle is not used to say that Timothy's ministry fire has, has been dying in any way, shape, or form. It's simply a reminder to continually fuel that fire of sincere faith. To continually stoke that fire. Keep it burning. Don't let it wane. Show that faith that is evident. This gift of God is is the power that God has, has given to Timothy to do what he's called him to do. 
It was a gift that was affirmed by, by Paul and the elders of the church. If you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, and Paul writing to Timothy in this first letter says, don't neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through the prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Now, before we take that verse out of context and make it say something weird about our power to impart gifts on people, that's not at all what that means. Paul's saying, God has given you a gift, Timothy. He's called you to this ministry to do what you're created to do. And he says, it's been affirmed by me and by the rest of the elders. He says, other people around you have seen it, have confirmed it, and have encouraged it, have supported it. Right, again, goes back to the heritage of faith. He knows that there are others around him who know what God is doing in Timothy. And so Paul says, listen, you know it, I know it, the elders of the church know it. Timothy, stick with it. Don't give up. Don't get dragged down. Paul reminds Timothy here that, that God's given him what he needs. Now he needs to stick with it. Faith in Jesus Christ is not a spectator sport. If you want to sit back and hope that you develop the, the kind of faith that will allow you to endure trials, to endure the, the pushback that's going to come from a world around you that seeks self over Christ, you want to sit back and just hope that happens, I'm sorry, you're going to be sadly let down. 100% without exception. Because that's not the way it works. In Philippians 2, verse 12, we read, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The instruction to the believers is not to just sit back, hey, I'm saved. Jesus saved me. Don't have to worry about hell. Now, eh, whatever. Y'all take care of yourselves. Good luck. I'll be right here. Now, the call is to continue to work out your salvation. To work out your salvation means to continually work to the fullest of your salvation. It doesn't mean that if you do enough work, you do enough good things, then you can be saved. That's not working out your salvation. That's trying to work for your salvation. That will be an utter failure as well. What he's saying is work out your salvation. Your salvation is only by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came to this earth to live perfectly, to die sacrificially, to rise victoriously and deliver you completely because you can't work for your salvation. But when you understand what Jesus has done, how he has saved you in a way that is just mind-blowing when you really stop to think about it, then why would you want to do anything other than work out the complete implications of that in your life? If you want your faith to die, stop being active in the ministry of your faith. You want the fire of your faith to burn bright? Engage in the ministry of your faith. 
I can't sit here and tell you what that's going to look like in your life. Some of you are going to be called to serve in ministries within this church. Some of you are going to be called to, to work out your faith in ministries in your workplace, within your extended family, in, in the schools, in the community, in, in any one of a million other ways. Right? So I can't tell you here's exactly what this looks like because we're all called to different things. But if we want to get there, we want to figure that out. Here's the question we have to ask ourselves. What will I give up to engage in ministry? You want to engage in ministry, it will require sacrifice. So what are we willing to give up? Will I give up a half hour of TV or mindless social media scrolling for silence before God? Will I replace an evening out with inviting a person or a family into my home to serve them with a meal? Will I trade 15 minutes of laying in bed after the alarm goes off for 15 minutes on my knees praying for my neighbor? I don't know what it's going to be for you, but I can guarantee you this. If you're not willing to actively engage in the ministry God sets before you, your faith will burn cold. What we do, the specific act of ministry, is far less important for most of us at this point than is the commitment to do something. We must commit to actively engaging in the work of God's kingdom. So what will we trade in order to engage in God's call to the ministry of his kingdom. It's not the ministry of our kingdom. It's the ministry of his kingdom. So there's this heritage of faith and engagement of ministry. But how do we do these? Paul goes on and in this last verse of this section, verse 7. Paul says, Timothy, there's this third fuel here. He says, it's the gifting of the Spirit. The gifting of the Spirit. <clears throat> verse 7, this last verse of this, this opening section says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. We could preach about eight sermons on this verse, and we would still be just touching the surface of what this means and how amazing this is in our lives. But for now, let's just look at it in the context of this entire passage. Paul says, Timothy, you gotta engage in this ministry. God has prepared you. He's done everything you need to be able to do what he's set in front of you. Now you need to step out in faith and do it. And he says, and don't forget, don't forget, you don't have a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and sound judgment. See, it seems from the context of this that Timothy has a problem. It seems that maybe Paul's pointing to the fact that Timothy is prone to fear. He's prone to people-pleasing. He's prone to backing down when he's faced with opposition. And Paul says, Timothy, this is your flesh fighting back against the Spirit. 
He says, any fear you have in you is not from the spirit. It's not God's calling in your life. Any fear that is in, within you is your flesh. And as opposed to that fear, the Holy Spirit offers power and love and sound judgment. Some of your translations say self-discipline. Why? Why these three as opposed to fear? Well, remember the context. Remember what Paul's telling Timothy to do. He says, stick with the ministry. Don't give up. Keep burning hot. Keep, keep that flame going. And the Holy Spirit's gonna give you power, right? Which is the Holy Spirit's enabling for the ministry at hand. Love, which is the attitude that Timothy must take into that ministry, seeking the best for others over himself, not concerned with what they think of him, not concerned with how respected or honored he is, but wanting the best for those around him, Christ-like love. So power, the Holy Spirit's enabling. Love, the attitude of Christ and sound judgment, which is godly discernment to do the work, to do it well and to do it right. Power, love, sound judgment. This is what the Holy Spirit gives you. Paul encourages Timothy not to resign to his frailty, but to rely on the Holy Spirit to finish the work that God has put in front of him. You ever had to be on crutches? or needed a, a walker or something like that. Why, why do you need crush it, crutches? Because you're broken, right? Nobody who's perfectly healthy is like, I think I need crutches today. No, you need crutches because you're, you're broken. You need something reliable to bear the weight that you carry so that you can get where you need to go and do what you need to do. If we want to fuel the fire of our faith, in God's purposes for our lives and for his kingdom, then like Timothy, we must overcome the frailty of our lives. The fact that we can't carry the weight, we can't carry the burden to get us where we need to go. We need the Holy Spirit to work in us so that we don't rely on our fear, but that we are empowered by power, love, and sound judgment. And again, that sounds really good. That's a really nice church speak. Like, okay, I gotta rely on the Holy Spirit. Great, thanks. That doesn't help me because I don't know how to do that. So how do we rely on the Holy Spirit? Well, once again, this is not about a specific prayer or some ritualistic act. If you just say these words, then you'll be good, you'll be covered. It simply means surrendering ourselves, surrendering our desires, surrendering our thoughts to the Holy Spirit and to his work in us and through us. And if you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not a question. That's a reality. If you give yourself to Jesus Christ, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. But, and here's an important but, but the question then becomes, will I allow that spirit to guide me, to lead me, and to empower me or not? Because I'll tell you, I know I've been filled by the Holy Spirit because of my trust in Jesus Christ. But I can also tell you there have been many times in my life where I've heard the Holy Spirit go, hey, Jonathan, go do this. And I said, nope, not doing that. Not today, not now, maybe not ever. Has the Holy Spirit left me? No. 
I am filled with the Holy Spirit. But we all have a choice to fight against him or not. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19. It says, don't stifle the Spirit. Stifle, some of your translations may say, don't quench the Spirit. The literal Greek word there is extinguish. Put out the flame, the fire, the heat of the Holy Spirit. We can decide we're not going to listen to the Holy Spirit. It'll put the fire out. It'll put it out real quick. But when we surrender our flesh to the work of the Holy Spirit, when we say, God, when you speak through your Holy Spirit into my heart, into my life, when you call me to go here, when you call me to talk to that person, when you tell me to send this text, when you call me to write that note, when you call me to do whatever it is, that's fanning the flames of our faith. When we surrender our flesh to the work of the Holy Spirit, we drink the fullness of faith and we get to be excited about God's work in ways that are far beyond our abilities. Because again, if you're leaning on yourself, your own strength, your own knowledge, the best you have to offer, you're gonna resort to that brokenness that needs a crutch. Only you don't have the crutch that you need. So you're just gonna fall. But with the gift of the Holy Spirit, we've been given what we need to act not on the frailty of ourselves, but on the power of the God who created the heavens and the earth with nothing but a word from his mouth. Listen, where do we draw the power for our walk of faith in Jesus Christ? Is it in our heads? Is it in our our desires? Is it in our strength or is it in our complete surrender to and dependence upon the Holy Spirit? In the opening of this letter, Paul is not addressing Timothy and saying, Timothy, here's what you need to do to be saved. The heritage of faith, the engagement of ministry, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's not saying these are what you need to be saved. He's talking about maintaining the passionate fire of knowing Jesus Christ and making him known. Most of us in this room know just how easily we can let the responsibilities of life, the distractions of of hobbies and gadgets, the the desires of our broken flesh to to slip into a, a central role in our lives and smother the fire of a heart focused on the beauty of God's grace, on the joy of salvation in Jesus Christ and 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 drive towards the drive towards growth and maturity of the Holy Spirit. It's easy to let things slip in there and sidetrack us. So how do we keep the fire alive? Paul says, as always, that it's built on the foundation of daily preaching the gospel to ourselves. That's where he always starts, grace and peace to you, through Jesus Christ. He says it's all about the gospel. But from there, he says, we must remember the heritage of our faith, which God has provided We must continually engage in ministry to exercise and strengthen the muscles of our faith. And we must treasure the gift of the Holy Spirit who empowers, equips, and guides into Christ-like living. Church family, may we be committed to rekindling the fire of our faith. 
And we, may we do so not to achieve some higher level of Christianity or to show uh, how, how much more spiritual we are than the other people around us. But let us burn intensely for Christ so that his goodness, his faithfulness, his love, his compassion, his truth, his grace, his mercy, his hope, his everything may be evident through our lives of humble submission and worship. And by this, may God be glorified by the light of our fire. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the fact that you have not just saved us, not just called us, but that you have welcomed us into your family to be a part of what you are doing, to be a part of the the victory and the glory of your kingdom. Not because of anything we do or anything we can contribute, but because you are a good, awesome, kind, loving, faithful God who allows his broken children to be used. And Lord, we repent of the ways that our broken flesh sidetracks us, the ways that we allow any one of a million things in this world to steal our focus, to reduce us to people who are just making their way through another day. Father, we pray that in the days, the weeks, the months, the years ahead, that you would give us the wisdom to, to continually remember the heritage of our faith, how you have provided for us, how you have molded us, shaped us, prepared us. And we would come back to the, the ministry to which you've called us. And that we would rely on your Holy Spirit filling us, indwelling us, leading us, guiding us, equipping us. So that you may be glorified that Jesus Christ may be lifted high so that those who are far from you would be drawn near to you. Again, not because of who we are or what we do, but because the fire of our faith burns hot to be used by you. Lord, may we burn hot May our light shine and may it always point to you. We love you. We thank you and we praise you. And in your great and awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.